garden, enjoying the nice cut green grass on the other side of the street, and wondering where and when is Pastor Peter going to cut his grass. You might have also glanced up and seen three blue tarps on my roof. So the, the wind decided to bless me this week and let me know of its presence. Uh, and then State Farm called me right in the middle of the service <laughs> and said, hey, left a voicemail, texted me too, said, you've got a claim, can we talk? I ignored it. Pray for State Farm. Turn to 1 Corinthians. Was it Jake? <laughs> it was not Jake from State Farm. <laughs> if it was Jake, I might have answered it. <laughs> 1 <laughs> Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 5. Um, one of the classic books of our time is The Lord of the Rings. Anyone here have read The Lord of the Rings? Okay, good. Any of you here watched the movies, Lord of the Rings? Okay, good deal. If you have not read the books, I encourage you to read the books. They are great they are great. I read the trilogy in about six days when I was in high school. We were on a vacation, and then I was depressed for like two weeks afterwards. It is a very emotional book, so don't read it in six days. Spread it out, but enjoy it. There, it's a story about a guy by the name of Frodo Baggins who has a ring, the ring of power, and he is supposed to take that ring on a journey from... Hobbitsville, for lack of the proper term, over to Mount Doom and destroy it in the fires of Mount Doom. He goes through a bunch of different hardships, times where he wants to throw in the towel, but he keeps going. It's quite a story. But I am convinced, those of you who've talked to me, I'm convinced that Frodo is not the main character of Lord of the Rings. And if you have not read the book, I'm sorry. You should read the book. Frodo's not the main character. Samwise Gamgee is. That's my theory. Samwise Gamgee is Frodo's servant, per se. He finds out Frodo is leaving on this journey, and he says, I'm coming with you. Frodo says, no, you're not. It's going to be dangerous. Samwise says, I don't care. I'm coming with you. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. I'm coming with you. So he goes on the journey with Samwise Gamgee. They meet up with a guy by the name of Gandalf, who is the leader of the good guys. And Gandalf tells Samwise Gamgee, stay with Frodo no matter what happens, stay with him. He needs you. So Samwise goes with Frodo across into the enemy's territory. They go through a whole lot of horrible experiences, experiences that Samwise should have just thrown in the towel and said, nope, I'm done. Experiences that many of us, if we had gone through, would probably say, eh, nope, I don't think it's worth it. I'm done. But he goes. He keeps going until finally gets to the very end of the story. Frodo is at the end of his rope. He can't take another foot step more. He's done. He says, I'm just going to lay here and die. And Samwise says, no. We've got a goal, and that's the goal over there. I can't carry the ring for you, Frodo, because you have to carry it. But I can carry you, Frodo. And he picks up Frodo and carries him the rest of the way, climbing up the mountain because he had a responsibility given to him. Responsibility given by Frodo, responsibility given by Gandalf, and a responsibility that he would not give up on. 
to bring Frodo to Mount Doom so that ring would be destroyed. Samwise Gamgee was a faithful friend and a faithful steward of the responsibility entrusted to him. And that's what Paul is writing about today in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. He is talking about being a faithful steward, no matter what comes. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, he says, This then is how you ought to regard us, <clears throat> excuse me, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you that we can know you. And that not only can we know you, but we can revel in you. Because you are our God, and you've given us all these amazing blessings that you have poured on us. Blessings that we've talked about already this morning, blessings that we have not talked about, blessings that we have not acknowledged that they're from you. But thank you for your blessings. And Lord, thank you, not only for your blessings, but thank you that you call us to serve you even through hard times, that you consider us able to come alongside and help you in your mission on this earth. It blows my mind, Father, that we can be yours and that we can serve you, even in our sin, in our brokenness, in our apathy, in our fickleness. You still choose to use us. Thank you for that, Father. And Lord, today as we study your word and we explore what it means to be your servants, your stewards, I ask that you would open up our heart and our mind to see what it is and Lord, to desire it and to be faithful to the task that you have called us to do. No turning back. Lord, help us with this. And as I am up here, Lord, I ask that I might decrease and that you might increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. Today in our passage, we are going to see that we are to be faithful stewards of the mysteries of God. And we're going to define what that term stewardship means, and then we're going to explain it practically. So first, let's define stewardship. Technically, my translation, the NIV that I use, does not use the word steward here. My translation says that it talks about those who have been entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. That word entrusted is the word steward. So, could read this then from verse 1, this then is how you ought to regard us as servants of God and as stewards with the mysteries God has revealed. In America, we don't really have a box for the biblical word for steward. We don't have someone who is in charge of a household and runs everything so that someone can go off and enjoy the royal court somewhere. We don't have a steward. 
uh, some terms that are close to us, we could think about the curator of a museum. The curator of a museum is in charge of the museum. It's in charge of the finances of the museum. It's in charge of the relics of the museum. He doesn't own any of it, but he's in charge to make sure that everything is running smoothly. Curator could be a steward. A caretaker of a cemetery or a, or a botanical gardens. That would be another close modern equivalent of a steward. A steward is a servant or a slave which handles the affairs of a household. That's the simple definition. A servant or a slave which handles the affairs of the household. If you remember the biblical character Joseph, when he was sold into slavery, he was brought to Egypt, Potiphar bought him, and Potiphar put him in charge of his household. Joseph became a steward. And read this in Genesis chapter 39, verses 2 to 6. Genesis 39, verses 2 to 6. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes, became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted his care, to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. And the blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Joseph was a steward. He was in charge of everything. The master didn't have to do anything. It was just Joseph. So a steward, a servant or slave with responsibility for the household. Keeps the household running, handles the finances, does the repairs, in charge of the household staff, all that sort of stuff. If you boil down all the responsibilities that a steward had to do in the household staff, it would boil down to one word, faithful. A steward was to be faithful with the responsibility given to him, which is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. He says, now it is required that those who have been given a trust, that steward, must prove faithful. The faithfulness of a steward is to diligently complete the tasks required of him so that his master will look good. A servant, a steward, never in his thinking at this time was to bring any glory or fame to himself. He was to run his affairs so that no one knows he's there and everyone looks at his master and says, wow, that guy's awesome. That was the role of a steward to be faithful with the tasks that his master would look good. His faithfulness was not to his own desires or his own responsibilities or his, his own priorities. It wasn't that the steward look at it and say, well, you know, I think things should be run this way. I know my master says it should be done that way, but he's wrong. I'm going to do it this way. That's not the steward. The steward says, this is my master's desires. This is my master's priorities. I'm going to be faithful to what he says regardless of what I think. The steward was a servant with responsibility. They're entrusted with something important and they were to be faithful to accomplish it for their master. The sense the steward is to be faithful to his master, the steward is to only look for his master for approval. The steward only looks to the master for approval, only looks to the master for, to be judged, so to speak, on what is right and what is wrong. Paul, speaking of himself as a steward, talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 to 4. 1 Corinthians 4, 3 to 4, he says, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, 
but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul says, I am a steward. Be faithful to the Lord. Therefore, I only am concerned about what he says, not about what anyone else says, not about what I say. It's only him. Jesus tells a parable when he is here on earth about a man who leaves to another country. And he gives his servants money to invest. He gives them a stewardship, a responsibility that they are to be faithful to. One man, the master gives five bags of gold and says, here, take this, invest it, and give it back to me when I come back. The guy goes, invests it, gets five more bags, he's rewarded. The master gives another servant two bags, and the servant takes the two bags, invests it, doubles it, brings it back when the master comes back, he gets rewarded. He gives the last servant one bag and tells that servant, be a good steward of it, invest it, and give it to me when I get back. And the steward, for some reason, takes the one bag of gold, doesn't invest it, which means he is not faithful to his stewardship, he buries it in the ground, and then his master confronts him about not being faithful with the stewardship. And the servant replies in Matthew 25, verses 24 to 25. Matthew 25, 24 to 25, he says, Then the man who had received one bag of gold came, Master, he said, I knew that you, had a, you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. The master condemns this steward for not being faithful to his task, and the steward is then judged. That's the end of the parable. My question is, why was the servant afraid? What was he afraid of? It doesn't really say in the text. It gives some hints that he seems to have a fear of failure, seems to have a fear of what the master might do if this servant did not meet an unnamed expectation. He had a fear of responsibility. There's lots of different fears that he had. And the text doesn't really say, but what's important is that the fear paralyzed him with anxiety, so he buried the gold to protect it instead of being faithful to the stewardship that was given to him. Whatever we fear, that fear becomes our master. The servant in that moment, whatever he was afraid of, that fear became his master instead of his actual master. So he served the fear instead of what his master said. Anything that controls us, anything we fear becomes our real master. Paul says, as a steward, he will not have any other master other than Jesus Christ. He will not allow the expectations or the opinions of the Corinthians to control him. He will not allow his insecurities or biases to control him. He will only submit himself as a steward to the control and judgment of his heavenly master. A steward is to be faithful with the responsibility. And a steward is to be judged only by his master, to follow only the master, nothing else. No matter his feelings, no matter his insecurities, no matter his biases, no matter his opinions, nothing else is to be a master except that one. A steward has a responsibility. A steward is to be judged only by his master. Finally, a steward will be shown grace. At least this one will. Paul concludes his paragraph in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. He says, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. 
Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. I appreciate that Paul, looking forward to eternity, says that each will receive their praise from God. Paul is a man, if you read through all of his writings, rests in the grace of God. He is not a fearful servant who hides his stewardship. Paul is able to stand up and say, I am broken, yes. I am a sinner, yes. I do not meet God's perfect standard for life or for salvation, yes. But, as he says in Romans chapter 7, verses 24 to 25, Romans 7, 24 to 25, Paul says, What wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. This servant, Paul, faithfully serves his master, allowing his master to look good, concerned only about what his master thinks instead of being filled with fear or anxiety for numerous reasons. This steward who serves faithfully, as Paul says, can be assured that one day they will stand before Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ will reach out his hand to this sinful yet faithful steward and will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter your rest. Can you imagine the freedom that that brings. Paul, in his life, in his ministry, does not second-guess himself. He confidently seeks to be faithful today and lets God take care of whatever happened yesterday and what whatever will happen tomorrow. He says, I will be a servant, I will be a steward today because I know grace is given. So this is the stewardship that Paul defines. A steward that is a servant to faithfully complete his responsibility, a steward that is judged only by his master, and a steward that will be shown grace. That's the definition of stewardship briefly. Now, let's talk about it practically. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.1, this then is how you, how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Every person who is a follower of Jesus Christ Every person who has declared with their mouth Jesus is Lord and believed in his heart that he was raised from the dead and is therefore saved is, has been given a stewardship of the mysteries of God. We're called to be faithful to that steward, that stewardship, not following any other master except Jesus Christ. And Jesus has left us here on this earth to wait for his return. But in our waiting, we're to be faithful to that stewardship. I think about Jesus' disciples when he brought them up to Mount of Olives and he told them, go into all the world and preach the gospel. No, I'm with you always, even to the very end of this age. And then he ascended. And all the disciples were up there staring with their mouths open. I don't know how long it was. Scripture doesn't say. It just says they were there, staring with their mouths open. And an angel appeared to them and said, Men of Galilee, why are you here standing looking up? Go back to Jerusalem. Do what Jesus had told you to do. So often we as Christians get into this mindset 
that we just stop and we're standing looking up and doing nothing. But God has given us a stewardship that we are to be faithfully doing until he finally calls us home. What is that stewardship? Well, here are seven basic steps of stewardship that we are to take on and be faithful to. I'm going to talk about these briefly. Briefly as in there are several, seven of them, and I'm going to take some time to cover all seven, but each point is going to be brief. Okay, so what are these steps of stewardship that we will be faithfully doing until Christ calls us home? First, we are to cherish God's grace. We are to cherish God's grace. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1 about the mysteries of God, the same term that he uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And he says specifically, the mysteries of God, he talks about the grace which has been given to us who believe. He says in Colossians 1, 25 to 27, Colossians 1, 25 to 27, he says, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. He's talking about the gospel. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God's grace is that he has chosen to make himself known to us. We, through Jesus Christ, being saved, are able to see God's hand every day in our lives. We are to see his grace every time we meet together as brothers and sisters in Christ, hopefully, and we are to cherish those opportunities of seeing God's grace in our lives, in the lives of the church, because every time God shows his grace to us, he's making himself known. We're able to see him more fully and understand him even better on what he does. What are some of these acts of grace? And Excuse me, in our personal life, these acts of grace could be Peace that passes all understanding through a really hard time. That is God's grace to us, making himself known. It could be comfort through grief. It could be financial provision. There's all sorts of things we could say, that's God's grace, that's make him making himself known. It could be as simple as the kids not screaming and yelling at each other for a whole hour. God's grace, making himself known. We reflect on the church. God's grace is how he is working. It's It's... The ability several years ago that we're able to completely remodel the sanctuary. That was God's grace, him showing that he is here. As we think about the future and the projects we're going to be doing and how he has provided financially, God's grace. It could be that the people that he brings to attend, his gifts and talents, their gifts and talents. It could be the demographics of this community of Calvary Bible Church as we look and say, oh, is God bringing a bunch of people, young people with their youth? Or is God bringing a bunch of elderly with their wisdom? Every season of this church has a different demographic, but every season, neither group is wrong. If we cherish God's grace, we will look and accept who he gives and will revel in it because it's God working. It's his grace being shown. We cherish God's grace, wherever we see him, we cherish it. We are stewards of God's mysteries. Let us be faithful until he comes. We live by faith. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 29, John 6, 29, Jesus said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. When we see God's grace in our lives, we are spurred to respond in faith. 
We should be. We should be open to how God is leading in the direction of this church, seeing whom God is graciously leading to us, seeing how God is opening up avenues of mystery, ministry. We, we, we as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, very readily say that yes, I believe Jesus by faith for salvation. But how easily do we say, yes, I believe him by faith to be my shepherd and lead me through life in the ministries that he is calling me and us to do. One person said it this way, our life is to mix faith with everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. What does this look like? 30 years ago, God blessed this church with a vibrant children's ministry. We had tons of people in Awana, tons of people in Sunday school, and then God took the kids away for some reason. Not going to blame it on anything. It's his hand at work. We as a church, though, kept ministering according to the past instead of asking God what he wanted to do now. Instead of ministering according to the past, we are to look at who we are now, working at, looking at the workings of God's grace now and respond accordingly in faith, even when it doesn't make sense. Even when it seems like it's going against what we consider our perception of our identity. It doesn't mean that we turn our back on who we are as a core. We don't change our doctrines. We don't change the foundation of our faith. But we might change our vision and our mission as well as how we practically live that out every single day. Doing what God has given us to do in the context that God has called us to live. To believe in the one that God has sent includes following in how he leads. We are to be stewards of God's mystery. We're to be faithful until he comes. That means we live by faith how God leads us to go as we cherish his grace. It also means that we maintain a relationship with Jesus Christ. We maintain a relationship with Jesus Christ. God sent a strange message to the Ephesian church through the apostle John. He said in Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, Revelation 2, 4-5, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Paul sa- the, uh, John says that the Ephesian church lost their first love. The term first love here, it's not speaking of a romantic love. The love he's speaking of happens when we find in someone else or something else what we desperately need because we do not have it. The Ephesians forgot that they needed Jesus daily. The mysteries of God stopped being mysteries for them because they were content in what they knew. They they were content in where they were in their Christian life. They, as the Ephesians, were doing some amazing things for God. They were battling the evils of their town and the idolatry that was rampant there. They could give all the answers to correct doctrine and theology. They could test and prove who the leaders of the church were and who were lying. They were doing some awesome stuff. But in all their knowledge, they had forgotten that they needed Jesus themselves. They'd forgotten what it means to yearn for him and to commune with him. 
They couldn't repeat with Paul what Paul said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. I want to know Christ. They couldn't repeat with David in Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, Lord. They couldn't do it. They had lost their first love. This relationship, this love that we are to have for Jesus Christ is kept afire through worship. It's not a worship that's coming together, striking up the band and singing lots of songs that make us feel good, but it's a broken approach to Jesus with tears in our eyes as we kneel down next to Mary and wipe Jesus' face with our tears and our hair because Jesus is what we need. He is everything to us. Without him, we are nothing. A relationship with Jesus Christ. Pursuing this relationship with our brothers and sisters in the corporate setting here at church. Keeping in mind that we're worshiping an audience of one, Jesus Christ and him alone. But this worship is also in our closet. Realizing that Jesus is the one we most desperately need today. For the decision that we have to make for the struggles we're going through for everything. This relationship is not something I've done well this week. And it showed up on how I've treated people and things I've thought about and the priorities I've had. But as we pursue this relationship, we're actually able to have strength and wisdom to live by faith with God as he leads us through life. We maintain a relationship with Jesus Christ. We live by faith as we cherish God's grace. Paul says we are stewards of God's mysteries. Let us be faithful until he comes. So we fight the good fight of faith. We fight the good fight of faith. Paul urges Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 to 12. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 to 12. But you, man of God, flee from all of this. And pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life which you are called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Through our relationship with Jesus Christ, as we identify with him, we learn the agony of his life. We learn the adversity that comes to us in all different forms. We face adversity, hardship within ourselves. And because of our stewardship, we fight the good fight of faith. And we flee from all the sinful ways within us as they are against God's grace. All the things that try to master us and influence us away from our true master, we fight against it and say, no, we are stewards of him and him alone. We face hardship outside ourselves as we face a world that does not understand the kingdom of God. They listen to us talk and they're confused. They see our morality and our standards and they take offense at us. So we fight the good fight of faith. In the face of opposition, confusion, and offense, we fight the good fight of faith to show righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness, no matter who we are around. We fight the good fight of faith to not be distracted from seeing God's grace in front of us. We fight the good fight of faith to live by faith through the good, the bad, and the ugly. We fight the good fight of faith to prioritize a relationship with Jesus every single day. We all know how busy life gets so many times, so many things demanding our attention, and we can catch ourselves saying, no, I'll spend time with God tomorrow. 
And so we push off our Bible reading and our devoted, focused time of prayer, even though it is Jesus who we truly need, not this other stuff. As we pursue Christ's presence, he gives us the ability to fight the good fight of faith. Paul says we are stewards of God's mystery. Let us be faithful until he comes. We are to fight the good fight of faith. We are to maintain a relationship with Jesus Christ. We are to live by faith. We are to cherish God's grace. Is everyone still with me? Yeah? Good. All right. As stewards, we are to disciple the faithful. We are to disciple the faithful. We're all familiar with Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 to 20. It's called the Great Commission. Jesus says, Matthew 28, 19 to 20, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. In the original language, the only command here in Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20 is to make disciples. That's it. All the rest of the verbs here are supporting the command. Basically, he is saying, we are to make disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching. The important thing is that we make disciples. There's an interesting verse in 2 Timothy which builds on this concept. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. 2 Timothy 2, 2. Paul says, And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who also be qualified to teach others. The work of the church, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, is we, if you are faithful stewards of him, is the work of multiplication. We, each one of us, is charged with picking those around us who could grow in Christ and share the work of God in our life with them so that they can turn around and share the work of God in their life with someone else. Faithful stewards. As someone says, we, disciple, we are to disciple shepherds who will disciple other shepherds. One man I look up to says, he, he's a pastor, and he looks out in his congregation, he looks for fat and sassy people. I looked at him, I said, what? Fat and sassy. Fat in that, that they are faithful, available, and teachable. And when he sees someone who's faithful, available, and teachable, he picks them up and says, I'm going to spend time with you, and I'm going to teach you the ways of God so you can go and teach someone else. Sassy in that they are seeking and sharing the Savior yourself. You're not looking for someone else to do it. You are doing it. So he looks for fat and sassy, and he invests in those people so that they will turn around and invest in others. Who does Paul say that we are? Servants? Stewards. We are to be stewards of God's mystery. Let us be faithful until he comes. So we are to disciple the faithful. We are to fight the good fight of faith. We are to maintain a relationship with Christ. We are to live by faith. We are to cherish God's grace. We are to invest in the body. We are to invest in the body. We dig into the body of Christ, the church, so that saints are equipped within the local church to live and serve in harmony and to edify one another in love. That was a long sentence. We're to dig into the body so that the saints are equipped with the local, within the local church to live and serve in harmony and to edify one another in love. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16, Ephesians 4, 11 to 16, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for the work of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith 
and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So as we invest in the relationships within the body of Christ, God is glorified, we are matured, and ministry happens, all within the body of Christ. Warren Wiersbe said it this way, ministry happens when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels for the glory of God. If we as the body of Christ are not investing in time in the local church, investing time in building loving relationships through the local church, we individually will not mature and others in the church will not mature either. If we spend all of our time watching church online, we will not mature. If we do not come, if we only come to church and then we run off and we don't spend time with brothers and sisters in Christ, we will not mature and ministry will not happen in our lives for the glory of God. Investing in the body means spending time together and building these loving relationships. Who does Paul say that we are? Stewards! How many of you are asleep? Thank you for the honesty. Good job. Okay. We are stewards of God's mystery. Let us be faithful until he comes. So we invest in the body of Christ. We disciple the faithful. We fight the good fight of faith. We maintain a relationship with Jesus Christ. We live by faith. We cherish God's grace. Finally, we invest in the world. We prayerfully look in our community and say, how can we reach the world for Christ? And then we fund those who are going places that we cannot go so that the work of God can happen all around the world. But the amazing thing is, if we are faithful stewards of the mysteries of God and we are faithfully cherishing God's grace, we are faithfully living by faith, we are faithfully maintaining a relationship with Jesus Christ, we are faithfully fighting the good fight of faith, we are faithfully discipling the faithful, we are faithfully investing in the body, evangelism and outreach cannot help but happen because it just flows out of us. When we as a church overflow with the witness and gladness of God's grace, the good news of the resurrected life of Jesus Christ shines brightly in the dark world around us. We see this in the early church. In Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. The early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, and all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved." The Christians of the early church were faithful stewards of the mysteries of God and God blessed that stewardship with multiplication that spread around the world. One person said it this way, if revival is the experience of the church, then evangelism will be the expression of the church. 
If we're looking out and saying, what's happening to our outreach in the community? Why is the gospel not preached? Why are people not coming to Christ? We need to look at ourselves and say, are we being faithful stewards in what God has called us to do? So who does Paul say that we are? Stewards. We are stewards of God's mystery. So let us be faithful until he comes. Let us cherish God's grace. Let us live by faith. Let us maintain a relationship with Jesus Christ daily. Let us fight the good fight of faith. Let us disciple the faithful. Let us invest in the body so that we can invest in the world. One day, our master is going to come home and he's going to ask us to give an accounting of how we have lived our time, what we have chosen to do with what he has given us, how we have lived out our salvation. Will we have been good stewards at the end of that day? Will we have an increase to show for our time here on this earth? Or will we come as that one steward and put everything on the table in front of God and say, I'm sorry, I was afraid. Will we have been good stewards? What you will be. I hope instead that we can be like Samwise Gamgee. We can accept the responsibility that's been given to us. We can pick up the burden even in the midst of the pain, the hardship, and the chaos around us. And we can faithfully walk until the end of the story comes. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for calling us, but not just calling us, for equipping us, for knowing that we as sinful human beings so easy get caught up in our own priorities and our desires. We get swayed by fear and anxiety. We do all the things we're not supposed to do, but you equip us. You kick us back on the path we're supposed to follow and you push us forward. Thank you for your grace that all the mistakes and the sins and the things that we did yesterday is paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we can live today faithfully before you. Help us to do that. Remind us every single day when we wake up and open our eyes that we are stewards and help us to live that stewardship faithfully, even as it is called today. Thanks, Father. Amen. Well, if you would stand with me for one more song, we'll close the service this morning with that.